Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 96 of Haunted Muse, and it features the latest installment of my third novel, Skeleton's Blood. Okay, so here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 26. Late the following evening at Providence Hospital, the after-Christmas letdown had set in. Trees dropped their tired needles all over the tile floors, while nursing assistants gathered up shredded wrapping paper from patients' presents, hastily left by family members making their cursory visits to those who were sick before dashing off to more festive surroundings. Most of the floors were staffed by young nurses who were still paying their dues by working holidays. The young pink-haired nurse, Billy, with whom Nick Gallinus had spoken so harshly a few nights before, was once again stationed at the visitation check-in desk. As Billy sat redrawing the outline of the semicolon tattoo she had planned to get after her next paycheck on the inside of her wrist, a tall, handsome gentleman with long blonde hair and a pale face approached her. He was not wearing a navy jacket. "'Miss, I wonder if you could direct me to a room, please?' he asked in a pronounced gentlemanly fashion, placing the tips of all ten white bony fingers on the visitation desk. Billy stared at the man's hands for a moment, noting in particular his nails, which were blue with cold and filed into sharp points. She felt a chill. For some reason, Billy got the strange sensation that she didn't want to look up into the man's eyes, but she said nothing about it, merely asking instead, "'Which room, sir?' For a mother and daughter, he replied, as Billy continued to stare blankly at the cursor on her computer screen. Liza Jane and Beth Marble. Although Billy knew immediately whom the man was referring to, again something inside her warned her to be oblique. She deferred. Are you a relation of the Marbles? You might say that, the man said, smiling slightly. Now, Billy chanced a quick peek up from the computer screen that shielded the bottom half of her face. The man's eye teeth were as pointed as his nails. Billy's attention refocused on the screen. Don't look at him, she wrestled with herself. Why? Just don't do it. I'm their husband and father. Billy pulled up the records for the two women, knowing even before she did so that this was a lie. Becoming uneasy, Billy slipped her hand beneath the desktop, feeling for the security call button. I'm showing that the Mrs. Marble have already had a visitor check-in to see them, and that he is on the registry as their husband and father. Pressing the silent security alarm button under the desk, Billy continued, Is it possible that you've made some kind of mistake? No, darling, the man said gingerly removing his long, pointed fingers from the countertop. I'm afraid that it is you who've made the mistake. In a flash, he was on top of her. Covering Billy's mouth with his hand to muffle her screams, the man sunk his teeth deep into her neck and drank. Draining Billy lifeless, in less than a minute, he allowed her body to slide from his hands to the floor behind her reception desk. Glancing at the computer screen to ascertain the room number, the man ripped 
the tearaway lanyard of keys and swipe cards from Billy's punctured neck and slipped up the elevator shaft like a shade, just as the security guard came clomping down the hall and into the reception area. At the top of the shaft, the man whisked his hand to the side with a flourish, and the door slid open. Once reformed into his usual shape, he made a hissing sound that cut through the air like the sizzle of a lightning strike. Every light bulb in that wing of the hospital made a quick buzz-ticking sound and then burn out. Downstairs, the puzzled security guard reached for his radio to call for backup. When all of the electricity clicked off, the swipe car door to Liza Jane and Beth's room swung open to the inside. They remained as Colton Merritt had left them, on the patient side of the glass in the isolation observatory room on the top floor of the psychiatric ward. As the pale man approached, the two women sat up in their beds. No longer restrained, they looked wild-eyed around them with expectation at the calming green-painted cinder block walls. Good evening, my darlings, the man said as he strode confidently into the room like a patriarch returning from an important business trip. Kissing each woman on the cheek in the European manner, he asked, Have you prepared yourselves? The hour is near when the three of us may be together again at last. Gazing at the man with ecstatic adoration, the women nodded their heads in unison. Excellent. This will only sting for a moment, the man said to Liza Jane, as her cornflower blue eyes begged him to move closer. The man took Liza Jane tenderly in his arms, and she rolled her head back, exposing the voluptuous white arc of her neck. He sunk his teeth in and drank until Liza Jane's face drained pale as death. Then, pushing back the collar of his plain white shirt, he pressed her face into his neck. Drink, my lovely, he whispered into Liza Jane's ear as he stroked her hair. Growing hard with excitement as she sucked and pulled greedily, the man broke free. Let's save some for our girl, shan't we? he asked, smiling down at his blood dripping from her new, long fangs. Beth had said nothing, just watching their exchange hungrily from the corner. She'd slid off her bed and scrambled on hands and knees across the floor to him, suppliant as a dog. He caressed her face and knelt to her, meeting her pleading eyes. However, just as he did so, the sound of footsteps began to echo up the stairwell at the end of the hallway. "'You must take care of her now, darling,' he said to Liza Jane, and in a blink he was gone. Beth whimpered after him as Liza Jane closed her hungry mouth over the soft flesh of her daughter's throat, sinking her new teeth in, and drank. Out in the hallway, half a dozen armed security guards stood in riot gear, guns trained on the man. "'Hands in the air where we can see them,' the group's leader barked. "'Then turn around and put them on the wall.' The man stared at them curiously. "'Why?' he asked, with a bemused look on his face. This caught the security detail leader off guard, enough that he questioned his own authority, as he stammered, or we'll, we'll have to shoot you. The man appeared to look even more amused by this. Try, he said with a wry smile, taking a step toward the security leader. He opened fire, emptying his entire clip in the direction of the man. Yet, as each bullet struck him, it was as if they were hitting an impenetrable wall. The slugs fell uselessly upon contact, each falling with a small clink sound to the tile floor. "'Body armor, eh?' said the second man in the security group. "'Taste this lead, wise guy!' And the second security guard opened fire straight into the man's face. As, after the first bullet or two found its mark, the man held up both hands to cover. 
When the second guard's clip was spent, the man dropped his hands. Careful there. The ricochet is wicked. You could put out an eye that way. Both the first and second men dropped their rifles, which clattered to the floor. At the same instant, every patient on the psychiatric ward began crying out like apes in the jungle. A multi-pitched, otherworldly keening that lasted for over a minute until every off-key note resolved into one unified hum. Again, the man made the same hissing sound he'd made as the power shut off, and all the doors swung open. Mental patients rushed out of their rooms and into the hallway. Moving as fast as their legs would fly, they crashed into the security guards, who were so stunned by what was happening that none of them thought to fire even a single additional shot. Pouncing on them like a pack of jackals, the patients pummeled the guards with their fists, feet, and anything else that they could grab. Chuckling under his breath at the spectacle, the man turned away, returning to the room in which Liza Jane and Beth were kept. There he found both women standing on the sill of an open window. We must fly, he said simply. Follow me. And with that, the trio of vampires swooped out into the starless winter night. They flew for miles and miles, over hills and towns and farms, all of which seemed as inconsequential as ants below them. Finally, they reached a deserted beachhead. The man pulled himself upright into a standing position, then drifted down to the sand. Both women followed suit. It's time to gather the rest of the family, he said. He knelt down and with the tip of his pointed index fingernail traced the outline of a man's body in the sand. Then he held his hand palm open facing the ground. Slowly, as if pushing down on a well pump, he pressed the flat of his palm into the sand. Pulling it back, the sand beneath his hand began to stir and fall away until moments later another pale-faced man sat up, his arms folded across his chest. Rise, my brother, the man called, his voice growing louder and more confident as the man, newly brought up from the sand, stepped out of his resting place. As if compelled by some unseen force, the sandman replicated the same series of actions with the grave beside him, and then so did the next, and the next, in turn, until all in all there stood twenty-six undead on the beachhead all staring in mesmerized silence at the original man who had raised them. "'Brothers!' the man called, then turning to the women, who stood in their hospital gowns, waving in the winter breeze. "'I call you forth tonight on the eve of replicating our greatest achievement. In two nights, the great ship Palantine will sail again through these waters, although this time she is no ghost.' but a genuine ship made of wood and sail. Before, she carried our kinds among the German immigrants from the old world into the new. However, on this voyage, our anniversary, she will plot a reverse course, and this country will fall at last under the control of the vampire. A raucous cheer rose through the throng as he continued. Did I not swear that I would return some day for all of you? to lead us into this new world of prosperity. Well, tonight, I fulfil that promise. Let the skies grow darker than midnight as the wings of our number blot out the moon. During our human lives, every one of us had to steal and lie just to scrape up a manner of living from the crumbs tossed to us off the tables of the rich. 
We were the dogs that they used to work the seas, but back shore, they kicked us under the table. But no more. Soon we feast on the fruits that three hundred years of toil should rightfully have brought us, but for the wealthy pseudo-intelligentsia swiping it from our very mouths. We are no longer their prey. No, no, he cried, working himself into a frenzy as he began to levitate above the beach. We are the predators. Come with me tonight and quench your parched throat so that we may be sated enough that our judgment is sound when our time comes. Rise, my brothers, and follow me into the city. He turned to Liza Jane and Beth, who gazed at him rapturously. Follow me and my family, for reunited with them I am invincible. We cannot fail. Tonight we drink together to the rest of our eternal lives. The sand poured down like hail upon the beach as the vampire pirates stretched their long, unused wings. Rising into the sky in unison, just as their captain predicted, they occluded the moon. In Providence, workers coming off the second shift saw a low, dark cloud moving toward the city from the south. Some considered it an odd movement for a winter storm. Others thought that an oil tanker must have caught fire off the coast and tutted at the pollutive effects that the smoke would have as it rolled in. Only one being, who was restless and up late reading, as always, saw the nefarious shape for what it really was. Squinting up into the sky from the steps of Athenaeum, H.P. Lovecraft took one last puff of his cigarette. Flicking it out into the street, the ashes sizzled in the snow. Yes, he thought, this was it. Time to leave the library. Time to find Donovan. Across the bay at Narragansett, Phoenix Graves saw nothing of the sky. In the dark basement of an old stone house, he sat curled into a ball. Arms wrapped around his shins and his back rounded, he sobbed into his knees. There was something wrong with his tears. They were sticky and smelled funny, and although he couldn't see them in the pitch blackness, they tasted like blood as they rolled down his cheeks and into his mouth. His stomach ached with hunger, and his hands and feet cramped with every movement, as if he were severely dehydrated. He wondered where he was and what day it was. He had no memories at all, past what he felt must have been a few nights before. And he didn't want to think about that, about his brothers. He'd been through a lot of therapy over the years, as he'd gone in and out of various drug rehab centers. Just push it out of your mind. He willed himself. Think yourself somewhere else. Anywhere else. However, that wasn't any good either. When he did that, Phoenix thought about his birth mother. Then he thought about his parents arguing. He thought about brushing his mother's hair when she'd asked him to because she was too weak from the radiation treatments. Her hair had fallen out in big clumps on the floor. Keep pushing, he thought, past that part. Okay, you're going to be okay. Just keep going. Next, he thought about Colorado. 
He thought about the way the snow fell down in the winter time and the flakes as big as his fist and light as a feather. He thought about watching the bears waddling fat and slow from his cabin window. Phoenix loved the bears. He loved their self-assurance, their way of knowing that they had nothing to fear in the whole wide world except for men, hunters, and their guns. Better not think about that either. Last, he thought about the spring thaw that turned the streets to mud and how the wheels of his jeep spun around and around before catching and punching forward at last. That was better, he thought, symbolic, concrete. He would get out of here somehow. But how? Phoenix heard footsteps echoing on the flagstones above him and men's voices. He couldn't make out exactly what they were saying, just a word or phrase every now and then. The captain, he heard several times. Is this some kind of terrorist group, he wondered? A paramilitary organization like on television? No, that can't be, he reconsidered. Their names were too ordinary for that, too Anglican. Harry, he heard one of them say, and another, Joseph, and then the weird British one, Alistair. He shivered involuntarily for the last one and sat partially up. Propping his elbows on his knees, he looked down at his ankles. They were sore from him trying to work his feet free from the shackles that bound him with a chain to the wall, but so far as he could tell, they weren't cut up or frostbitten. This puzzled him because he pulled and twisted so hard he felt certain the bones of his ankles would be separated and swollen, yet they were not. I'm like a bear, he thought. A bear with his foot caught in a trap. So thirsty that he felt dizzy, Phoenix rested his head on the gritty stone floor, his legs still curled up under him into a ball. Drifting off, he thought he heard his own name, then decided he must be delirious. Yet it came again, a piercing whisper in the darkness. Phoenix, a feminine voice. Where was it coming from? Phoenix kept his eyelids screwed shut, not wanting to break the spell of his dream. This blessed escape from his thoughts. The voice continued. Phoenix, can you hear me? Her voice sounded concerned. Phoenix wished that someone were worried about him. He didn't think anyone ever had. Not since his mother died, anyway. Don't open your eyes, he thought. You'll only be disappointed. It's a dream. It's only a dream. But the voice persisted. Phoenix, I can't get any louder or they'll hear me. I've come for you, but you have to invite me in. This time, Phoenix couldn't stand it any longer. He opened his eyes and looked out into the blackness at the direction from whence the voice came. To his surprise, the pale, round face of a young woman stared back at him through the basement window. Her eyes shone like emeralds. Are you an angel? Phoenix asked. Am I already dead? No, the girl said, wrinkling her forehead. I'm not an angel. I'm Mercy. And I've come to take you away from here, to a place where you'll be safe. I saw what happened to you. What they did in the woods. They did it to me, too, once. But I got away from them. My friends, they who are now my friends, helped me. 
So now I'm here to help you. But I can't until you let me in. With great difficulty, Phoenix staggered to his feet. Shuffling toward the dirty basement window, he halted abruptly mid-step. Leaning forward, he reached for the window latch, but it was still several feet away. So close, yet so far. Phoenix crumpled to his knees on the stone floor and began to sob again in spite of himself. He covered his eyes with his hands, hoping that she, this Mercy, would not see that he was crying. I can't, he whispered, defeated. I can't reach it. You don't have to, the girl said. I can open it. You just have to ask me. Say, come in, Mercy. I welcome you, and I can come to you, quick as a wisp. Phoenix's exhausted brain crackled with her curiously antiquated phrase. Quick as a wisp. Who was this strange girl? Phoenix wondered. Yet he did as she told him to. Come in, Mercy, he asked, adding on to the end. Please. The young woman said not another word. As Phoenix watched her, Mercy tapped around the glass pane of the window. Feeling no way to open it from the outside, she began to trace a thin white finger just around the edge of the glass. On her second circle of the pane, Phoenix heard a squealing cutting sound. It reminded him of nails on a chalkboard. He strained his eyes in the dark to see if she had a glass cutter, but so far as he could tell, she seemed to be cutting the glass with her actual fingernail. As she made the full circle around, Mercy extended all of her fingers out so that she could pull the pane out onto the grass in front of her without making a sound. Her nails were long and curved at the ends, and they went around the glass like the claws of a cat. Then, faster than Phoenix could observe her moving, she was inside. You can't break these? Mercy asked, kneeling beside him and picking up the chains that were attached to his ankles, one in each hand. Up close, Phoenix couldn't see the long claws of her nails anymore. It was as if they had retracted into her fingertips. No, he said. I've tried, but I can't. Tried pulling my feet out every way I can, too, but they're just too tight. Mercy set down the chains and examined his feet. Her touch around his ankles was like ice. He shivered again, his muscles remembering that one man, the bald one. Alistair, holding him, pushing his head back. Mercy broke in. That means they haven't finished turning you yet. That's good. It'll be easier to break the thrall, she said. From his confused look, Mercy could tell that Phoenix had no idea what she was talking about. She shrugged. I'll explain about that later, once we're safely out of here. I'm just going to have to pull this whole thing out of the wall then, she continued, examining it. But it's going to make a lot of noise. They'll probably hear, so we'd best be ready to move. You'll have to hold the ends, or they'll catch on something. She walked over to the wall, examining the place where the last link joined into the hook that was cemented there. Wrapping a chain around each hand, she asked over her shoulder, Are you ready? Phoenix nodded, watching her with intense curiosity. Okay, here we go then, Mercy said working herself up to the task by leaning back as she counted down. One, two, three. 
On the last count, she jumped and kicked both feet out to the wall, propelling herself backwards off of it like a swimmer kicking out of a turn at the end of a pool. Mercy yanked the chains free, iron hooks and all. The wall collapsed down onto itself, and the heavy rock floor above them cracked, dropping several feet. The men upstairs screamed obscenities at one another, wondering what the hell had happened. "'Here, take these!' Mercy exclaimed, shoving the ends of the chains into Phoenix's hands. "'Get over to the window. I'll push you out.' He stood gaping at her in disbelief. "'Move!' she commanded, pushing him forward, up and out the window. Once outside, she pushed the chains out of his hands. "'You can just let them dangle now. I'll fly higher. Put your arms around my neck.' Stupefied, Phoenix did as he was told. He couldn't stop looking at Mercy's glowing green eyes. As Mercy pushed off from the ground, Phoenix looked back over his shoulder just in time to see the left wall of the old stone mansion crumble. The men inside screamed again as the roof began to collapse on them, but Phoenix didn't care. He closed his eyes and buried his face into Mercy's soft brown curls. He was free. This is the end of chapter 26. Tune in next week for the next episode of Skeleton's Blood here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell. Someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. Yeah.